Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the timeless, timeless song Magic by Pilot there. I've got the huge pleasure and honour to welcome David Payton here today. David, uh, synonymous for, for writing Magic and Pilot as well as Alan Parsons' project, uh, his solo career and work with many other artists. First of all, welcome, a huge welcome, David. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. It's such a pleasure and... When we were discussing this before, it's just an impossibility to cover your or do your career justice just in one podcast. So we'll be going right into your career across two shows, as well as featuring your excellent new album 2020 in both shows. We're starting with Magic, which many people is one of the songs that people know you for. What was the sort of spark or idea for that track? I guess it was the verse that came first. And my wife uh, said to me one early one morning when I had to get up really early, I was helping a friend with his dairy, and he asked me if I would deliver milk for him for a week. Um, I was also working in the Mecca Circuit and Tiffany's during the, the evening. So that was a five-night-a-week gig. It was quite strenuous, to say the least, getting up at five o'clock in the morning and then getting home at one o'clock in the morning after my gig. Um, my wife said to me, I've never been awake to see the daybreak. And it suddenly it stuck in my head as a melody. And I get a lot of ideas from things that people say. And it was just her saying, I've never been awake to see the daybreak. And that inspired me to write the verse, which is, I've never been awake. I've never seen a daybreak leaning on my pillow in the morning. So that went down as one of my ideas. And I could read music, I can write music. So uh, it was so early in the morning I couldn't go to the piano and play it. So I managed to write it down on a piece of uh, music paper. And then that went down as one of my ideas. And when I was composing songs, I would generally have a cassette player above my piano or by my side if I was playing the guitar. And I would come, I just came up with this little chorus Oh, 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 it's magic, never believe it's not so. That's all I had, and that's all I needed. <laughs> you know, it's only, it's only four bars, but it's just so memorable. It, well, it's proved that now by still being around as a, a classic song. So I, I married the two ideas together, and that's how magic came about. I mean, for me, the wonderful thing about your work in Pilot is that it took the pop sensibility and hooks of the Beatles, but like groups like Badfinger took it into the 70s and gave it a fuller sound. Mm-hmm. Even from the, you know, your debut single, like Just a Smile, it's just got those timeless melodies there. Was the, the Beatles uh, something that you kind of looked for and then was kind of embellished? Yes, oh, definitely. I discovered the Beatles very early on when they had their Saturday morning show on, on the radio. I was fixated by this band. I'd never heard anything. Like everybody says when at that time, especially when you first heard the Beatles, what's this? You know, this is fantastic. And so they were a great influence in many respects, and especially when they started to write their own songs and, and it gave them a real identity then. And I always set my sights on that. This is what I want to do. I want to write music. And um, I didn't want to be famous. I wanted to be successful. I, I see these two things as different things. So writing music was 
fantastic for me because I never achieved anything academically. I was never good at anything at school except for sport and nothing else interested me. And so making my stamp with music uh, gave me a lot of confidence in myself. We talked about the Beatles, but the connection of being signed to EMI, working at Abbey Road, and even with Alan Parsons, who had engineered with the Beatles. Yes, he was in his early years, so he was probably at what was known then as a tape-up. And then the next step up is engineer. So he was definitely there engineering, especially with uh, Pink Floyd. You know, he did engineer Dark Side of the Moon. And then when we did sign with EMI, mm. um, I was so delighted to think I'm going to be working in the Beatles workshop. You know, it was just a huge thing. And I didn't want to be with any other record companies, although there was other offers. I just wanted to work in Abbey Road. That was it. And to work there, that was a dream come true, really. And Alan was presented to us then as an engineer on a list of 10 engineers who wanted to take the next step into producing. So I think we, um, I noticed the name Alan Parsons, being the Beatles fanatic that I was. I knew he'd worked with McCartney. I knew he had been in on a couple of Beatles sessions. Out of the list of 10, I said, that's the guy I want. And I think Cockney Rebel did the same, uh, as well as a few other, uh, John Miles and, and whatnot. And they, they, you know, they all saw Alan Parsons as, yeah, this is the guy. It's just a smile about your wife. As most of my songs are, yes. And um, because she's the closest person to me. And when I started writing songs, we were, um, we were just married. You know, so I spent a lot of my life with my with my wife. We're still together after 47, 48 years, she reminded me yesterday, 48 years. So, yeah, a lot of my songs are inspired by my wife. And Just a Smile was one of the first songs I wrote that I thought, this sounds like a proper song. You know, I was delighted with it. I'm still delighted with it. I think it's a, it's a lovely chord structure and... With a lot of my songs, they sound really simple until you sit down with a guitar and try and play it. And then you realise, and you know, I've, I've got a video on YouTube of me playing the chorus to Magic because I was so frustrated by listening to people playing Magic and thinking they've got it right. And there were so many mistakes. So I hope I've rectified that now.
January is especially a case in point in relation to it comes across quite simple, which is quite hard to do in itself. But actually, underneath it, it's more complex. There's extra layers to that. Yes, there is. I think um, my songwriting was beginning to develop then and I was beginning to understand what makes a good song. It's not a recipe, but um, you get to know what makes a good song and and a good melody. And melody has always been the most important thing to me. But I realised that a lot of the melodic songs that I liked were fairly complex in their in their structure, in their chordal structure in particular. And I didn't make a conscious effort of, oh, I'm going to put in a, a flattened fifth here. It just came and it worked with the melody. That was uh, another number one for you and uh, number one in the, the UK. I mean, been having big hits over here before, but actually to get number one at the time when just to get into the top 40, you had to sell a lot, sell a lot of records. But to get to number one, that must be life changing. Oh, it is. For any songwriter, that is the ultimate to write a number one, and I couldn't believe it when I, I wrote a number one. It was overwhelming and fantastic achievement. I'm still really proud of that. It was number one in Australia for 11 weeks, <laughs> and they got fed up with showing the same video over and over again. One of my favourite songwriters is Ray Davis of, of The Kinks, and some of his songs mix... They have, have an optimistic melody, but sometimes the lyrics have a slightly sort of are not as necessarily as positive. They have different shades, and, and January has got a little bit of that for me. The, it's not all pop, you know pure pop positive in the lyrics, but actually January's got something that just kind of undercuts it and makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that came. I know January came from my wife again. She was reading a book, and she said the heroine in this book is, her name's January, isn't that a nice name? Yeah, and you know that January went into my head and stayed there. So the next time I sat down at the piano, it just came out, January sick and tired. What, what am I singing about? <laughs> I don't know. I know that the verse is about me being so delighted with the success of magic, uh, and I'm saying I'm, I can, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to show the world, you know, what I can do. But uh, January really stems from the book that my wife was reading. The two work, the verse and the chorus, they work together. A, a great way that the song is constructed as well. I mean, it's just like a Swiss watch, <laughs> the way that everything kind of marries up. It's quite remarkable. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I'm delighted with that. I, 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 I do tend to focus on arrangements as well when I'm writing a song. I like it to be to sound complete, and I, I like to hear all the parts. When when I recorded that as a demo, but, well, you know, Pilot were just a threesome to begin with. We didn't have... Ian Bernson on B guitar and for the first album I played guitar and bass so when when we put uh, January the demo together um, instead of the guitar part it was a mellotron the mellotron was just playing do 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 and Ian Bernson embellished that into his you know well established guitar part that's on that song so the ideas were already in my head. I could hear the harmonies. I could even hear hand claps and all the rest, which became a trademark for Pilot. But I just always heard that. And I suppose it stems from the influences of the Beatles and the 60s in particular. You mentioned Ray Davis. I think he's a great writer. And all of these influences were going into my head and I was absorbing it all. So it came out in my own way. Although you wouldn't say, oh, that sounds like the Beatles. Well, maybe you would with Magic. In fact, um, when McCartney, when Alan played McCartney um, Magic, um, he listened to it and his one remark was, 
Yes, very nice, but it does sound familiar. <laughs> good to sort of mention your pilot's second album second flight and, and call me round was another hit off that how did things change because um i think at call me round in particular that was a song that you worked on with ian yes you know I, initially i wrote all my songs myself ian wasn't renowned for his songwriting but it was just this uh, call me around it just seemed unfinished to me when i wrote it and it, and it only lasted two minutes and i thought i have to extend this in some way 
And when I played it to Ian, he said, well, can, can I have a go at writing a section? I said, okay. So Ian wrote the section, I can make you mine forever, let me know you can. It just worked with the rest of the song, so okay, there's a Peyton Berenson composition. Were you touring much in, in this period? January is another massive smash, and then you were following up. Were you, were you touring much at the time? No, we only toured, our first tour of the UK was with Sparks. They were headlining the tour. And um, it was during the tour. I think the tour the tour started in September. And as it progressed, Magic was released. And it suddenly went up the charts. And the audiences, well, the, soul, the shows were sellouts after Magic became out. There was two hit bands touring on the same bill. So that was the first tour we did. The second tour we did, we had Smokey supporting us. Unfortunately, maybe three quarters of the way through that tour, my voice just went completely, and I don't know if I was under the weather, stressed, or whatever it was, but I just couldn't continue. So that tour ended, um, you know, prematurely. That's the only two tours that Pilot ever did. Don't be afraid 
And another great song of yours, certainly in pilot, is Penny in My Pocket. Now, Morin Heights, you were working with Roy Thomas Baker for that, so you weren't working with Alan? Yeah, we wanted to harden up our sound. Um, we were always um, referred to as a teeny bop band, which I, I hated that label because um, I was in the Bay City Rollers and they wanted to pursue that line. And I thought, no, that's not for me. That's not what I want to do. I want to push myself musically and I want the music to speak and not the, the boy band thing to speak out for me. Uh, so the, the music was the most important thing. When I wrote Penny in my pocket and we got Roy Thomas Baker on board, it was a harder sound. And Penny in my pocket was... <laughs> written about my corrupt management who were skimming off the top and uh, there was me walking from my hotel to Abbey Road because I didn't have yeah. money for a taxi or a tube. <laughs> that song, Penny in My Pocket, that was just written by you? Yes. So less collaboration in the band? Less collaboration, yes. By that time, we were we were split up. The Billy Lyle and Ian Bernson and Stuart Tosh, they all moved to London, to England, to... And I I wanted to stay in Edinburgh. So that left me to, when I was writing, I was on my own writing. But with all the pilot songs, we never collaborated. Although Magic is credited as Peyton and Lyle, it was just the way we wanted to, we wanted to emulate the Beatles as much as we could. Penn and McCartney. Yes. Yeah, so the first album, it was, everything was Peyton and Lyle. Uh, the second album, things changed. And, you know, January is written and it's just in my name.
So another track of yours, Canada. Yes. Did you actually go? When we got Roy Thomas Baker on board, he suggested, he said, would you like to record somewhere else rather than in London? And we said, sure, what have you got in mind? He said, well, there's a great studio in Canada, a place called Moran Heights. And uh, he said, you might just like it. It might inspire you. So we said, OK, let's go with that. And of course, he and I agreed to it. it came out of our budget eventually. But uh, that's how Canada came about. And when I found out we were going to be recording in Canada, it was at the time of the Olympic Games. And I thought it would be a good idea to write a song called Canada, although the motivation wasn't to put it forward to the Olympic Games to see if they would accept it. It was just, I'm excited about going to Canada. But we did put it forward to the Olympic Committee and they said... uh, if I changed my nationality to Canadian, they would use it. <laughs> I wasn't willing to go that far. we have pilot and get up and go so that's about 1977 was that the period where you you, ch- you actually changed uh, record labels didn't you we did i was actually approached by eric wolfson and uh, as you know the alan parsons project were signed to arista and he put the idea to me would i be interested in signing again as pilot with myself and ian ian bernson 
And I thought that was a good idea, although I hadn't been writing, so I wasn't really prepared to get involved in another album. We did fly out to meet Clive Davis, who's the head of Arista, and during the meeting he said to me, Luke, it's easy. All you need to do is write a song that sounds a bit like magic and a bit like January. And he says, that's it, you'll have a hit. So, yeah, I I went home and it's not very often I'll consciously try and write a song in a certain style. But I had these two songs in mind and I wrote the song Get Up and Go and I sent it to them, to Clive Davis. He sent me back a message I think it was teletext or something. Telegram, uh, telegram. Is that, that sort yeah, of thing. That that's what it was. And I just said, fantastic, you've written your next number one, <laughs> which didn't happen, but at least he had a lot of faith in the songs that I had chosen to write for that particular project.
is the final pilot album, certainly in, in the 70s, is uh, Two's a Crowd. So Library Door, was that kind of harking back to the, the early days of pilot then? Yeah, that was me reflecting back on how pilot came about. And we came about, initially I, I met Billy Lyle while I was in the Bay City Rollers. And I spent maybe nearly two years with them as their lead guitarist. Yeah. And I left the band when they were about to sign with Bell Records. I had said to Tap Payton, um, you know, I'd rather not be famous than be famous as a Bay City Roller. And it was, it was my attitude at that time. I was listening to bands like Yes and Genesis and King Crimson and Free, you know, bands that were making a statement and, uh, and not following. They were, when I was with the Rollers, we were playing chart music. I wanted to progress from that. I wanted to be playing original music. So I left the Rollers and Billy continued with them. I left the Rollers and I, and I started working with a, a band where we played original material as well as kind of progressive material. But I continued, I used to go to the library with Billy and we would get music out for guitar and flute. Billy was a great flautist. So I continued going to the library and I met him at the library door one time when it was raining. He was coming out, I was going in. And I just reflected on that when I wrote the song, The Library Door. It was the start of Pilot. Blind you mumble 
those first four pilot albums have been captured and collected on a relatively new Sherry Red box set and retrospective. Bit of a journey across that. It shows the start of, of pilot to things progressing and, and the band fracturing, I, I guess. There's a journey there? There is a journey, yes. It's the almost the complete picture of pilot from start to finish, right up to Two's a Crowd. I was delighted that they included Two's a Crowd on the box set because, um, you know, there had been compilations before of the three EMI albums, but um, Two's a Crowd was on Arista. So it was nice. It was really good to see the four of them together. And it, for me, it is the complete journey of Pilot from start to finish. You know, we started as a three-piece, then we amalgamated to a four-piece. We went back down to a three-piece again when Billy Lyle left and then it was left up to just Ian Bernson and I to do Two's the Crowd. A sort of companion piece to that is the, the Craig Hall demos album. Much of the material was recorded for those demos at Craig Hall Studios in Edinburgh which is where you lived then. Yes you mentioned the library door that was when Billy said to me I am working as an engineer in the Craig Hall Studios in Edinburgh if you'd like to come down, you know, I'm willing to record your songs. If you play bass and guitar for me, I'll play piano for you. So that was that we recorded a lot of songs before we approached EMI. So from 1971-72, we were writing songs and we approached EMI around about 74. So there was a huge collection of songs. And I think we had about 100 songs. A lot of them didn't survive and... They were all on tape. Uh, some of them were pressed onto acetates, which I <laughs> dumped a few years ago. I don't know why. I'm just not a nostalgic person for keeping things like that. But I realised that to some people it's really important to keep these things. And now I regret that, um, that in particular, the demo for Magic has gone. It's, it's not there anymore. But it was just a reflection on what we recorded in Abbey Road. All the, all the parts were there, you know. So the, the track Goldmine that we'd be playing next, that, that comes from the sort of latter period of, of the group in terms of that original span of, of Pilot? It does. It was recorded in Craig Hall. And I, I suppose I had I felt like I was the driving force in the band. Although I was a reluctant front man, I, I was, it was left to me to do a lot of the songwriting. And I felt like the band were just waiting on me writing another song or another album they they diversified they started working with other musicians and um, you know we'd get together when I had the album or Billy had written songs of course as well so I was I was a bit peeved that they weren't as focused on pilot as I was and that's why I wrote the song Goldmine and, and, and the guys treating the whole thing like a sideline
I guess a combination of that and and the management and money issues meant that it was an easier easier thing to to focus on being a musician and and working with Alan Parsons in in what became the Alan Parsons project then. Mm. Yes, it was it was definitely the management who who decided that it would be a good idea to give Billy Lyle a solo career because Billy was a bit unsatisfied that his songs were not being released as singles. They almost picked my songs as the singles, and that's because I was a more commercial writer. Billy was a very accomplished writer, uh, and a lot of his songs are really cleverly put together, but they just weren't commercial enough. So Billy was a bit unsatisfied, and and he, the management gave him a solo career, which took him away from Pilot. So when we, we recorded um, Modern Heights, the third album, Billy wasn't there. And um, it's kind of reflected in the songs I was writing at the time that um, I felt that Billy and I, we had the bounce together creatively. And it wasn't a case of writing together. It was a case of Billy playing me a song and saying, what do you think? And I would just say, that's great. You know, I have to write something better than that. So now, David, we have the cask of Amontillado originally from the tales of mystery and imagination, the uh, Alan Parsons Project album, but we have your remake of it in uh, recent years. How did you get involved with the Alan Parsons Project? Because we have previously discussed uh, Eric Wilson and some of the discussions you've had with him. Well, Eric was the uh, the businessman behind the Alan Parsons Project, and he handled all the business. So I had a call from Eric Wilson asking me to come down to London because I lived in Edinburgh at the time and he said it's important you know I'd like to speak to you about it face to face okay so I flew down to Heathrow and he was there we met we had a coffee and he explained to me his idea of putting together a concept album it wasn't a long-term plan it was just the one I spoke about based on the tales of Edgar Allan Poe I must say that after that first album, every consequent album was kept a secret, even from us. And we had to guess just by listening to the lyrics what this what this idea was going to be about. So, um, yes, yeah, so one of the songs on there was The Cast of Amontillado, a lovely song, and nicely put together, a lovely arrangement, and it was great to play in the studio. Really enjoyed it. And we're playing uh, your version of that. Now, you're talking about the uh, the pilot version of The Cast yeah. of Amontillado. Ian had been working with Alan on, on live music. He was touring with Alan, along with Stuart Elliott, who was the drummer for the project, and Alan decided he wanted to move to America and uh, he was going to use, not a pickup band, but a, a bunch of American musicians. So that left Ian high and dry. And Ian had uh, devoted 10 years of his life to the Alan Parson project. And his stamp is firmly there with his guitar playing. I just thought it would be a nice idea if we recorded some of the songs that he had contributed, we had contributed so much to together while we were with the Alan Parsons project. So it was in um, 2014. So 2014, I just recorded one of the songs and I sent it to Ian and I said, do you want to put guitar on this? Yeah, Ian said, great idea. And it sounded so good. And I thought, 
you know, there's no way we could compete with Abbey Road and Alan Parsons, but we did a good job of it. And and it was nice to say we've done this just because we can. And and it sounded like the project because we were such a big part of it. So 2014 saw the release of the first pilot project. And I called it a pilot project because that's APP. It's the same as Alan Parsons' project.
from the second album where you re-recorded the Alan Parsons Project albums and other pilot projects is some of the time. In terms of going back again to that, I guess the the sound that you, you recreated on a pilot project was it was successful. So you decided to kind of continue that that journey into revisiting that material. Yes, and by that time, I mean we're talking about last year, uh, two thousand nineteen. By that time, Ian he wasn't able to play. So this is a venture I took on by myself, and I, I am a, a lead guitarist as well as a a bass player, although, you know, I work as a bass player, I work session work as a bass player, and there's no, there's no way I could compete with the way Ian Benson plays, but I can emulate a lot of the things that he's done because I've worked with him for so long. So I did the Traveller, another pilot project in 2019 and put that out. And my daughter has a good voice. She, she doesn't sing professionally or even amateurly. She pursued acting for a while, but um, I just suddenly thought, I want to do this song. I'm going to ask my daughter to do this. So Sadie sings along with me on that song, and she does a great job. I'm delighted with her.
Like a mirror held before me, love, just the sky is wide. And the image is reflected back to the other side. Could it be that somebody else is looking into my mind? Some other place, somewhere, some other time. Some other place, somewhere, some other time. I'm meaning to ask you about is um, not many people seem to know that you're on backing vocals on Malukin Tire, <laughs> one of the biggest selling songs of all time. And you mentioned sort of Paul McCartney earlier. How uh, did that come about then? We were in Abbey Road recording with Alan Parsons, and McCartney knew that there was uh, a lot of Scottish people in the band of the Alan Parsons but he'd met us before briefly you know we chatted and, and whatnot and, and, and he spoke fondly of his farm in Kintyre and I remember Linda showing me lots of photographs and, and things and, and it, it became quite friendly you know and on first name terms with my hero it's fantastic and he just popped into the studio one time while we were recording and, and he said uh, I'm doing a, a song he says it's got a Scottish flavour to it will you Come along and sing, and I'll give you a dram. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. We went. We went along and, and sang with Paul and Mullock and Tyre, which was fantastic to sit to be in studio too, with McCartney singing on one of his songs. A fantastic thrill. And after that, you know, he, he said to me, "Come along to the studio anytime you want. You're welcome anytime." And I took advantage of that, and I went along one time myself, and and Paul was sitting in the control room. He was he was having a joint, and uh, he told me, and he said, sit down, sit down. So I sat down beside him, and he started talking about the songs he was recording, and he picked up his guitar, and he played one of them for me, which led on to me saying, can show me how to play Blackbird properly. Wow. <laughs> he, just, he showed me how to play it and the, the way that he played it. So that was a great thrill for me to, to sit there and have a one-to-one with my hero. Deserts 
EMI and the pilot connection runs through Kate Bush as well. Yeah. And you actually also, you know, talking about huge, big selling singles, Mullock Tire, but also Wuthering Heights. So was that bass or guitar? 
on Wuthering Heights. It's the only track I played guitar on exclusively and didn't play bass on. I mean, there's a few songs that I played bass and also acoustic guitar. But on that one, the producer, Andrew Powell, who himself is a bass player, I think he knew that that was going to be the first single. And he said to me, David, do you mind if I play bass on this? And you play 12-string guitar. And I said, sure, no problem. Um, yeah. So, but that, And that was session work, which I felt really comfortable with, moving into that area and moving out of the, the pilot, you know, and, and being recognised all the time. And I wasn't never comfortable with that. I was never comfortable with going into a pub and people saying, oh, there's David Payton, let's go and get his autograph. And I hated it. And um, it caused a lot of nervousness for me and stopped me going out. So to move on into session musician, I felt I'd really found my niche when I started doing that work with people like Kate Bush and, and also the Alan Parfit Project because I was anonymous. And over the years, eventually... People stopped recognising me, <laughs> in particular now that I'm 71. <laughs> did you realise how special Kate was when she heard her music and how did that influence kind of how you accompanied the, those songs? Because some of them are quite idiosyncratic as well. Oh, I think we were all um, quite stunned. We knew she was going to be good because um, Andrew said, oh, this girl is, is very special. When we met her, we recorded that album in Studio 2 again in Abbey Road. And Andrew just said to her, um, he introduced us, and then he said, OK, Kate, will you sit down at the piano and just play the first song we're going to record? And she did. And I think our jaws dropped. We all just stood around the piano listening to this faultless performance and this beautiful voice. You know, we were supposed to be taking notes. <laughs> we all just stood there and went, Wow. <laughs> So she had to play it again for us so we can get the gist of it. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience working with her.
next we've got your was it your debut solo single no ties no strings it was Yes. Obviously, you're pilot at Endage. You've been working with on the Alan Parsons project. You've been doing sessions, but you were still at the same time pursuing solo solo work. Then I had a manager at the time. His name was David Knights, and he was the bass player with Brockle Harm. You'll remember them. Yeah. And he was encouraging encouraging me to write. I I wasn't concentrating on writing as much as I should have. And I had a good friend in Chris Rainbow, who's sadly no longer with us. And Chris um, was having a playback at one of the studios in London. I think it was Sarm Studios. I went along to the playback along with my manager, David, who also managed Chris. And while I was listening to the playback, I could see David Knights talking to the head of A&R of EMI. And the guy was pointing over towards me. Um, so after the playback, David said to me... Um, do you know what he said? I said, no. He said, I want that guy on our label. And that was it. That was me. Uh, I, I thought, oh, I need to write some songs for this. So I signed to EMI. It must have been around about 1980 or so. And um, and recorded the album for them. I should have been a bit more prepared. Although I'm happy with the songs, I didn't write an out and out single. Although no ties, no strings, kind of came close to it. And, of course, it was about, yes, my management contract had finished, pilot had finished. I was a freelance musician at that time, so it's reflected in a lot of the songs I was writing um, specifically for that album. Be coming back to, to that album or re-recording of that album in the second podcast. <laughs> Never leave it behind There's no more holding 
want to do now is take a temporary pause on well, your journey through various projects and go up to date, really, in the, in the last couple of tracks of this first podcast. And as I was saying at the start of the show, one of the best albums of your career, um, a set of, of hugely strong songs. So it's great to sort of talk about them here. So the first of, of your new material that we're playing from your new album 2020 is Midnight Limelight. It's got that classic David Payton feel to it. Is that, is that a, an older track of yours or is it something that you've done more recently? That's an older track and I'd kind of forgotten all about it. On my website, I put it up on a website because I used to talk to the people that were following what I was doing and, and let them know what I was up to, sometimes play snippets of songs and I, and I put up Midnight Line Light and I said oh this is an old song that I, I just discovered that kind of sounds quite nice and I got a big response from the, the people saying oh you should put that on an album you know and, and I thought okay and that's what happened you know I kept almost the same format I extended it a little bit but it's almost the same format as the way I had written it oh when it must have been the 80s or 90s that I wrote it Tonight I'm on my own 
thing about 2020 as well, it's got different... It seems to hang together as a, a piece of work, as an album, but has di- a different sounds and feels to it, and no more so than, than our final track here on, on the first podcast, Here Without You. It's got that... I don't know if it's classical guitar, but it's got more of that acoustic feel, but uh, it feels like it's a song you can almost dance to as well. Ah, uh, it's a kind of rumba. You would call yeah. that rumba. And I did use mainly acoustic instruments on that. Uh, I have my good friend Dave Stewart, the drummer, playing drums for me, and I used my upright bass, which I don't use that often, but it just seemed to suit the song. And as you say, a classical guitar as well. There's a nice video of me on YouTube um, singing the song live in my studio, and as the solo approaches, I forgot that I didn't have a pick, and I wanted a pick. So um, I had to get up while filming and grab the pick. And I didn't mean to do it, but when I watched it back, I thought, that's quite good. I think I'll keep that. So I just kept it. And I'm delighted with that song. I've always managed to be able to write in that kind of style that I I suppose it's a kind of South American feel or Spanish even. And right from the first pilot album, I wrote a song on there called uh, To You Alone. And the second album, Lovely Lady Smile, there was always a song that had that flavour to it. And I'm delighted that I managed to capture it again for this album. Fantastic. And uh, before we close this first podcast, it's it's definitely worth getting people to check out your website, davidpayton.com. And I think people can also buy the new album at davidpaytonsongs.com and as well as all the usual online digital places and, and that kind of thing. As we close this first show, can't wait to dig in and continue your, your solo journey on part two. But just to say, it's been a huge pleasure and privilege talking to you on, on this first part, David, and I look forward to catching up with you for the second part. Me too, Jason. It's been a pleasure and great fun. Like the way-
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.